morning, Gresham Bible. It's uh, great to be with you in this format. Um, still longing for the day we could be together again. Uh, if you missed the announcements that Jordan gave or uh, the update that went on Friday, just want to encourage you to go and look at that as we're talking about our reopening plan and, and hopefully getting back together again someday soon. Uh, but if you have a Bible, please open it up to Psalm 79. That's where we're at this morning as we end this season of walking through various psalms. Um, and, and I don't know about you, but it's become very evident. If it, um, if it hasn't to you, I hope it's, it'll be very clear today that the psalms are, are often way more honest than we are, very much so, and hopefully in a refreshing sort of way. Um, the psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 79, is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament. I think over a third of the psalms are lament psalms, at least. And uh, a lament is a distinctively Christian act. Lamenting is where God's people cry out to God uh, as they look around their world and they realize things are not the way they should be. And so it's a crying out to God, asking for God's intervention and redemptive actions. And as we look at a psalm like this this morning, even if you just kind of glance at it, it's pretty, um, it's pretty raw. Um, there's a lot of talk of blood. Um, there's, there's a lot of injustice that's happened or um, a lot of justice that's actually happened as well. But it's a pretty difficult text. This is not a psalm that you would cozy up with a blanket and a cup of coffee in the morning and read and just let your heart warm to God or something. It's a psalm that you read and you kind of go, okay, moving on. Psalm, psalm 80, that one sounds a little bit better or something like that. But, but these psalms are important for us to sit in. And this morning what we're going to see is that this psalm really draws out the idea of the anger in our lives, the anger in our lives. Um, I'm sure that most of us do not like being around angry people. We don't enjoy feeling angry, but we really must see right out of the gate here, um, it's a really helpful thing to see, that, that we not only get angry, but that each and every one of us has an anger problem. We all have an anger problem. Um, David Pallison is the one who I heard say that, that we all have an anger problem, and he, he's no longer with us. He died last year. Um, but he, he's an incredible biblical counselor when he was with us, and I highly recommend his works to you. And one of the books that he wrote uh, was called Good and Angry, Good and Angry. And in that book, he talks about our anger problems and how just in saying we all have an anger problem, there are six common reactions to that. And so I kind of wanted to walk through that just so we all can get on the same page here right away, that when we, we talk about this idea, we all react to that statement in different ways. So I'm just going to give you one of the reactions and then sort of the blind spot of saying or thinking of anger in this way. So the first thing is, he says, the first response to this idea is that we all say, yes, the first response is that I say, I know I have an anger problem and I feel really discouraged and guilty about it. These are the people that their anger is always before them and they're ashamed of it and they feel like they'll never change. But the blind spot of viewing anger in this way is that these people think that the goal of change is merely the absence of anger. That I hate my anger, I just never want to be angry again. And that, as we'll see this morning, is definitely not the case. The second reaction is people who say, maybe I do have an anger problem, but other people have a much bigger anger problem than I do. And the blind spot in thinking this way is that these people seemingly see their anger problem as much smaller and less serious than other people's, but it becomes so small and not serious enough that they will never tend to deal with it. And therefore, these people can float into self-righteousness. The third kind of response is people who say, no, I don't have a problem. I've got good reasons to be angry and bitter. I don't have that problem. 
The blind spot in these people is that they act as if two wrongs make a right, or 20 wrongs make a right. And ultimately, these people are deceiving themselves about who they really are. The fourth reaction is people who say, well, I might get angry sometimes, but I'm not really an angry person. And the blind spot for this person who sees anger this way is that they basically view anger as this sort of alien intruder in their life. And so when they get angry, they are really surprised by it. And they're like, where did that come from? That kind of idea. The fifth reaction is people who say, no way, anger isn't a problem. I found that anger is the empowering solution to our personal and social problems. The blind spot for these people who see anger that way is that they don't easily see how the oppressed turn into the aggressors. They, they need to ask themselves if they are right about what's wrong, but they are wrong in their way of being right. The sixth reaction is people who say, what, I, I hardly ever get angry. Let's, life's usually pretty good. I keep problems in perspective. You know, and this person, their blind spot, is that they don't see that people ought to care enough to get angry sometimes. They, they might be indifferent towards the world if this is their attitude, or keep life's troubles at a distance in order to keep their life peaceful. As we all have an anger problem, my goal in pointing this out out of the gate is not to shame us, but it's to see that, that we want to put Psalm 79 before our hearts this morning and to ask God to transform our anger into redemptive, righteous anger. And we're going to do that by walking through the psalm, and we, these three questions are going to be raised. The first is this, in verses 1 through 4, the question that we want to ask is this, what makes you angry? The, the second question is in verses 5 through 10, what makes God angry? And then verses 11 through 13, uh, really beginning in verse 10 as well, but what should you do now with your anger? What should you do with your anger? So let's look at this, this first thing here, what makes you angry? Verses 1 through 4 says, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. The context of the psalm is that it was most likely written around the event of Jerusalem's downfall and subsequent exile when the Babylonians came in and, and defeated them and conquered them. And these people were removed from their land, from the land of Judah, and they were dispersed throughout the Middle East. Guys, God had continually long suffered with them and was patient in grace towards his people, but God's people continued to ignore him, worship other gods, and ultimately God used other powerful nations to come in and conquer them and scatter them across the land into exile. He sent prophets to, tell, to call them back to God, but they refused, and so God used pagan nations to judge his people. That's what this exile prom, uh, primarily was pointing towards. It was that God's people were being judged for their sin. We see the promise uh, in the Pentateuch of God that he would, um, this would be the outcome of their sin if they continued to ignore him. You can look in places like Deuteronomy chapter 28 or here, this will be on the screen for you, but Leviticus chapter 26 talks, says this, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, 
Then I will scatter you among the nations and will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation. But this is what's happened. This is the reality of God's people. And here beginning in verse one, we see this outcry of God's people that's focused on the grief that's been caused by their enemies. It says the nations have come, right? Verse one, what did the nations do? Well, it lays out three things just in verse one alone. They showed no respect for the land and the people of God. That's, that's where it talks about the inheritance there in verse one. Number two, they showed no respect for the temple. In verse one, they defiled your holy temple. Right? The next verse, or verse 1 as well, they showed no respect for the city of God. It says, they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Right? Their enemy nations have come in and destroyed and, and, and killed their uh, people, have destroyed the temple in different places, they've taken their stuff, and now this outcry of justice comes, this lamenting of God's people is coming up because they have, been, they, they have brought down the temple and the city of God. Now, this is a very big deal the nation's bringing down this temple. This wasn't just a convenient building, like a, like a church building or something like that. It was a symbol to God's people of God's presence being with them. And it was a symbol to the world of God's rightful good rule over those people. In verse two, we see their anger continues on and they're lamenting of the unburied bodies of those who fell in warfare. So the people who had died had relatives and those relatives were too busy trying to survive and were now exiled, so the bodies remained where they were. I mean, how horrible is that? That people you love, your own relatives, have died and their bodies are just laying there, and you don't even have the chance to bury them. Right, verse 3, they continue, and we see that these people had no regard for God at all, or God's people. This is brought out in this metaphor here of water, right? It says they have poured out their blood like water. These, these human lives and the destruction of these human lives was, was so intense, that it's described as their, their blood being like runoff water, right? And then verse 4, we've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Guys, here's the thing. These people are lamenting. They're crying out for justice. They are angry. Why? Why? What makes them angry? Well, bad stuff has happened to them. And furthermore, God's name is at stake. Let me just ask you, what makes you angry? Have you ever thought about that? What makes you angry? Have you really sat down before God and said, why am I getting angry? Have you ever, have you ever done that? Guys, anger speaks loudly to the world around us. It reveals something. What does it reveal? Your anger is revealing what you love. Your anger is revealing what you love. Anger isn't the absence of love. Anger is always, always tied to our love. It's always tied to our love, right? And, and so when we get angry, it is revealing that. It's revealing that. When the heat gets turned up, what is coming out of us is, is exposing that. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I love saunas, love saunas. I wish I had a sauna in my house. I love it. So most people I, I know hate saunas for some reason, but I think they're amazing. If you've ever gone into a sauna before, it's like 120, 140 degrees, I think, in places like that, and you go into a sauna, and what happens? You sweat, right? You sweat every single time. I've never been able to go into a sauna and somehow been determined that I'm not going to sweat, you know, and been able to not sweat. I know I always sweat. What is inside of me inevitably comes out of me 
when the heat gets turned up. It exposes what was in me, right? I sweat. That's what happens in a sauna. The same is true in our lives. When the heat gets turned up in our lives and we get angry, what is coming out of us is revealing that. As anger is revealing things, you are doing the anger, right? If I could say it that way, anger isn't happening to you. You're doing it and it's revealing something about you. It's showing what you love, right? We might often say in our anger, look what you made me do. Or you made me angry, but it's just so not true. It's not. You are doing the anger. It's always you who are doing it. The heat is getting turned up and what's in you is coming out. Right? And so when we brood on this question of what makes us angry, if we're being honest with ourselves, it almost always is because of a personal affront against us. We are, we are like Israel in this way. Something has been taken from us. It's a, it's a possession. It's, it's something we care about. We've been disrespected. Right? We, we've, we've, we've had people speaking ill of us in some way. Right? These are all things we see happening even in these four verses. But, God, but, but again, this, this should not be a surprise. Time and time again, God warned them of the judgment that was coming, but they didn't listen. They didn't care. They hardened their hearts. They closed their ears. They should have been angry with their sin. And now the anger only came when they started losing stuff. So what makes you angry? And what is that revealing about you? Secondly, we see what makes God angry in verses 5 through 10. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Have you ever wondered or thought, does, does God get angry? Do you ever think about that? Does God get angry? I think there's honestly probably two dangerous ends of the spectrum in answering that question. There's some people who, who perceive God as just always angry, that he's just an angry father marching around the house, uh, ready to just lay into you the moment you do anything wrong. It just He's there to shame you, basically. He barks orders and shakes his head, that kind of, a, that kind of image of God, because that, that's not true. Because God loves you. He loves you. And He has demonstrated His love for you in offering Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Right? He has satisfied His righteous anger against our sin so that you could receive God's unfailing love. But there's another in the spectrum where people basically were like, yeah, I was over on that other side at one point but I've, I've grown up, I'm better than that now. God is never angry, right? And so we kind of, those people kind of imagine God is almost like a hippie, you know, who's just given the peace sign and always at ease and just kind of telling everybody to chill out, that kind of image. But that, that's not true either, and our passage is showing us that. See, we do this because anger is often most categorized as just a bad thing. But, but way back in the day, if we could say it that way, it wasn't that way. We've ruined, we've ruined anger. 
it's kind of like clowns, right? Apparently, I didn't know this, but clowns apparently used to be funny um, in, in some way or, or whatnot, and people enjoyed them. But now clowns are just kind of creepy, aren't they? Clowns are pretty creepy. Um, I'm really sorry if you like clowns, but for the most part, people are creeped out by clowns. Why? Well, S Stephen King ruined clowns for us, basically. That's what happened, right? In the same way, anger isn't necessarily a bad thing, but we've ruined it. So you even see places like Ephesians 4 where Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give in to the devil. Right? He's, he's telling us to be angry and not sin, that we can be good and angry. Right? And we see this in God. Right? A question is raised here in verse 5. And this question serves as a transition from just lamenting about our circumstance to now lamenting and crying out for God to do something. Okay? For asking God to help. And here God's people pose the question, how long, O Lord? Which is a cry you see throughout the Bible of God's people. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? I think it's important here to simply point out that God does get angry. They point out that God is angry. And here they have this heart-wrenching cry of a question, how long? How long? This is a cry from a wounded people, you guys, not a proud people. Right? They just received a humiliating and severe blow. But notice, they aren't asking God why he is angry. They are asking him how long they must suffer. That's what they're asking. They call out for God to pour out his anger on the nations, in verse 6, on people that essentially don't know God and, and kingdoms that don't call upon God. They know God has judged them right, as his people, and they now want God to judge the nations. Interesting, right? We see why they are angry, but they also know why God is truly angry. Where, why? Why is God angry? What makes God angry? Well, God is angry here, and they know it. God's angry because of their sin. They hardened their hearts against God. They didn't listen and God brought them low. That's what we see in verse 8. It says, we have been brought very low. Not just low, very low. What, they, what are they crying out for? It says, do not remember against us our former iniquities, verse 8. Right? And then they say, say what in verse 9? Atone for our sin. Right? The nations sin, and God will judge the nations, but the sin of God's people, that's even greater, you guys, because they know God, and they know they are to image their God. So let me ask you, if God gets angry and he doesn't sin, then do you get angry at the things that God gets angry at? Do you get angry at the things God gets angry at? Oftentimes, we get angry when we're tired. If you're anything like me, if I'm tired, exhausted, had a long day, my, my fuse is shorter. So many times my anger is out of annoyance, out of a, a selfishness to want to just be at peace and do whatever I want. God's anger... Well, the book of Isaiah tells us that God never gets tired. He never grows weak or weary. So if God never gets tired, and if God doesn't have a bad day, so to speak, then his anger is often unlike our anger. His anger is controlled. It is not flippant. He doesn't fly off the handle and need to be calmed down and gather himself and come back and say, sorry, guys, I just kind of got worked up there for a second. Uh, you know, and he, he doesn't apologize. God never has to do that. His anger is controlled. It is intentional. It is focused. It is righteous. God hates sin. He hates rebellion against him, 
in his good rule and reign over humanity. Why? Because he designed life. He is the creator of life. And, and he not only knows how it works, but he has a purpose in, in how we are to live. Right? And when you go against his good, created, and designed ways, it is offensive to him, it is destructive, and it doesn't reflect his image. So, for example, if you hit someone, just for an example, if you hit someone out of anger or you, you try to wound somebody with your words, right, you have offended God. Why? Because he designed you to not harm and injure other people, whether it's physical or emotional. He designed you to love others. So when you don't love, you are sinning and rebelling against God's good rule and design. He said, this is how this is supposed to work in life. And when we're doing that, we say to God, essentially, sorry, I hate that person and I'm just going to do what I want. God gets angry at sin. We can see this maybe in the example of uh, maybe a parent who has a child who's raised and um, gets, gets thrown into the prison of drug addiction, for example. Right? A parent loves their child, but seeing the destructiveness of that addiction will put within them a, a good anger, right? Maybe at a whole host of things. Maybe it's the drugs itself. Maybe it's the cartel. Maybe it's the dealer that he's getting it from or she's getting it from. Or maybe it's even just seeing the ways that their, their child will not change and can't be free. There's an anger there that's good and right because it's destructive. Because it's appropriate to watch the news. It's appropriate to read the news and to hear about injustices done to people to see the oppression of women, to, to, to look at the staggering statistics of abortion, to, to think about what's going on in human trafficking or the use of chemical weapons or racial injustices, right? And to get angry. God gets angry at sin. His anger has burned against the suffering and injustice that comes from it. We tend to categorize all anger as sinful anger. And part of the reason is, is that anger is often only used by us and experienced by us in sinful and raging kind of ways. But God's anger here isn't destructive. It's not, you know, burn the house down kind of anger sort of thing. It is redemptive anger. Why? Because his anger is always tied to his love. It's always tied to his love. Oh, how unlike God we are in our anger. His anger is redemptive, not destructive. Why? Because his anger is designed to lead his people to repentance. This anger has led his remnant people to a place of prayer, has it not? Right? They're on their knees, they're brought low. And what's their prayer for? What's well, for forgiveness? It's atonement. We see that in verse 9. Why? So that their forgiveness and deliverance, through their forgiveness and deliverance, the nations would know that God is the one true God. Do you see that? They say, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake. This is their heart, right? That's redemptive anger, you guys, right? If that's the result, a humbled people, repentance, faith, God's glory displayed, if that's the result, we're onto something here. We're onto something here. Guys, God would answer their, this prayer in ways far above and beyond their hopes and anticipations. God would answer this prayer beyond all reasoning. 
God would answer this prayer with wisdom that seemed foolish to the world. He answered their prayer not in the ultimate timeliness that they would have hoped for, though, but he answered it fully and finally and better than any desire they could have ever manufactured in themselves. Because not only would God bring forgiveness and atonement, and not only would God eventually vindicate and restore them after a long season of exile, God was going to forgive, restore, and atone for their sins, and he was going to do that He was going to satisfy his anger against their sin, not by throwing down with them, but by coming down to be with them. Guys, think about this. God's anger, God's anger drove him closer, drove him nearer to his people, drove him nearer to you than we can really get our minds around. Guys, God's anger drove him nearer to his people than you and I could even imagine. Think about that. God's anger drove him to send Jesus, his son, into the world and experience the anger and hatred of humanity. Jesus not only experienced the world's anger, it drove him to experience the world's anger on a cross as they cried out, crucify him. And on the cross, on that Good Friday, as it became noonday, darkness fell over the hill on Calvary and Jesus experienced that full satisfaction of God's righteous anger towards sin when he endured the payment for our sin on the cross. God's anger, yes, is tied to his love, and his love informs his anger, and his anger reveals his love. This is why I asked you, do you get angry at the things God gets angry at? If God is good and right, and if he made everything, then having our hearts aligned to His, especially as His redeemed people, that would cause us to experience and exhibit anger in ways that are redemptive and not destructive, would it not? As followers of Jesus, our prayer then becomes not that we would experience the absence of anger in this life, but that our anger would be mirroring the things God gets angry at. Um, I don't know if you guys use Spotify to listen to music at all, but if you use that platform, you can follow different people and see their, the music they listen to or see what they're even listening to in the moment. You can look at their playlists and that kind of thing, okay? Now, if you uh, were to jump on my Spotify and follow me, uh, what you would think that I listen to all the time is uh, basically the Frozen soundtracks or princess music or kids bop or high school musical or something like that. And you would conclude basically from just looking at the music I listen to that Josh is a child, okay? But that must, that's weird. You know, I can't, I thought Josh was this way, but man, look at the stuff he listens to, right? And, and in a real sense, my kids always jump on our Spotify, listen to music way more than I do, and it misrepresents the music that I actually enjoy, the music that I actually listen to, right? This is, this is the same thing with God. And if you don't listen to Spotify, if you use that platform, you could think of it in the way that you own a car for years and everybody knows you buy your car, like they recognize you. And then your kid gets his license and, and takes it out and for a spin and misrepresents you out in public in that way. Or maybe a really um, close to home example right now um, would be when I, when I spoke to a police officer the other day and he talks about the officer who, who murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis. And he said, that officer disgraced, dishonored the badge. He doesn't represent uh, what we are all about. He doesn't. 
he, he, disgraced, he disgraced what it means to be an officer, to protect and serve and that kind of thing. Right? He didn't represent what the police are there for and what many, many police do. Right? This is the same is true with God. Our anger either represents the loving heart of God, the righteous anger of God, or it misrepresents Him. It doesn't glorify Him. Is your anger you-centered or God-centered? Is your life, if your life is God-centered and not you-centered, then you will get angry at the things God gets angry at. You will care about the things God cares about. And your anger can be used for redemption and not destruction. But lastly, we see then, all right, well then what should I do with my anger? What does that mean? Well, look in these verses 10 through 13 here. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Here we have the second question that's raised in verse 10 by God's people. In view of all the devastation that's come from other nations, they've been brought low. And in view of God's glory, why should their taunting, the nation's taunting, be tolerated any longer? The nations have blatantly challenged the power of God with the question, where is your God? They've destroyed God's people. They've torn down the temple, all this stuff. And they're just taunting them, saying, where is your God? They're saying, Lord, how long? How long will they... Will you let them keep doing this? The psalmist again then returns to prayer, doesn't he? What's the prayer? Vindication. But notice the vindication he wants is now. Right? The psalmist says, let your justice be known among the nations before our eyes. Not the next generation's eyes, but before our eyes. The eyes of the people singing this song. They know that God isn't indifferent towards sin. He isn't indifferent towards the ways that we treat each other. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and turn a blind eye when others are oppressed. God is a God of justice, and they know this, and so they pray for this. When you get angry, then, how do you act? What do you do? How do you respond? Let me be very clear here. I think what's off the table is, just to be clear, like if someone is being harmed, you don't just go, Lord, do something, but you, a good, righteous act of anger would be to protect that person, okay? We're not talking about that, though, okay? That's not the question. This is a remnant of people. It's a corporate people. How are they responding? How should you respond with your anger? We see this in verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. The people looked to God to vindicate them. They didn't look to themselves for that. So whether it is today or one day, God will bring vindication. He will make things right, Right? When our anger is God-centered, guys, our responses, our responses place our actions and outcomes into the hands of God. When our anger is God-centered, we place the outcomes and actions of our anger into the hands of God. Right? We bring our offenses to God. And then we see this side of the cross, even after Jesus has come and, and satisfied that righteous anger of God for our sin on the cross. We see in places like Romans where we hear that we should not only respond with the absence of evil, 
just leaving it up to God, but we should respond with what? The presence of good. I mean, just look at this in Romans chapter 12. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, talk about, that's pretty radical, right? I mean, it's, that's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, this is, what this is kind of describing is essentially like in our anger, we get really anxious to express it, you know, in maybe unrighteous ways. It's kind of like you, you're cooking a, a chicken pot pie in the oven. Like, I really love chicken pot pie. And you get that thing out, it's been baking for like 40 some minutes or whatever. And you just dive right in, what's going to happen? You're going to blister your mouth, right? You're going to burn your tongue badly. And you're going to wait for it to cool. And then you finally go and you eat the meal, but you can't really taste anything at that point, right? You've, you've ruined the meal, right? You, you didn't wait. You didn't wait, right? The gospel-centered life, the Jesus-like response is to wait, to go to God, to put it in his hands, to put the vindication in his hands, to wait for the meal to cool. But you don't just wait so you can just sit there with bitterness and hatred and go someday. No, we are empowered then by the Spirit of God to respond with love, right? To respond with the presence of good, not just the absence of evil. Now, now look at how effective this is. It says it's like heaping burning coals on that person's head. And I used to think that this meant that if, if I receive evil and I respond with good, that I'm doing so to heap burning coals on his head. That kind of feels like a passive aggressive way of doing something good. So you're like, yeah, yeah, how does that feel? You know, that kind of idea. And, and that's not at all what's happening here. The idea of heaping burning coals in their head is this image of, of something, receiving something in such a way that it wakes me up. It's jarring. It's kind of like getting cold water splashed on your face. That if someone acts in an evil way and I respond with the goodness of God and I leave ultimate justice and vindication up to him, then that can wake people up. That can wake people up. But if I just keep responding with evil, with evil, with the ways of the world and the ways of the world, that's not going to be redemptive at all. It's just going to further be destructive. But when I live in this way, when I use my anger in this way, man, that is, that is redempt. Talk about redemptive anger. I mean, how in the world? I mean, just think about how in the world can we respond with anger in this way? How can we do this? Why should we not seek to vindicate ourselves every time? Why should we not just get people back? And how in the world are you ever be empowered to live out something like Romans chapter 12 or even to want to pray the prayers that these people are praying in Psalm 79? How? Because if you're a Christian, guys, your entire life is based upon the good news that God didn't get you back. If you've come to trust in Jesus, if that is your life, that is true of you now, you are a Christian, your life is based upon the story and the truth of the story that Jesus didn't get you back. But when he experienced sin and evil, he took it and responded with good. Right? He was the ultimate one who returned evil with good. Again, not just the absence of evil, but the presence of good. So if the good news is that Jesus didn't get you back, and he gave you the greatest good, salvation, eternal salvation, new life, new creation life, then every offense we receive, you guys, is actually an opportunity to embody the gospel. Every time you don't seek to get someone back, 
but instead you respond to their wounding with healing, their stealing with giving, their hatred with love, their evil with good. Every time you do that, you display the heart of God. Your anger can be redemptive anger. As when our anger is God-centered, our response places our actions and outcomes in God's hands. Right? As we respond the way Christ would. And we rest in the fact that we know one day our God will right all wrongs. He will make all things new. He will bring ultimate vindication. We see that these people who are suffering and brought lower are not despairing, but they're hopeful, aren't they? Look at verse 13. Right? They remind themselves of what? Even in a moment that they're in, just looking around, looking at the destruction, they remind themselves of what? Who they are. They say what? We are God's sheep. They know they have a shepherd. They, they give thanks to God forever. They say, we will recount your praise from generation to generation. Isn't that amazing? Look at the circumstances they're in. I mean, they're describing horrific scenes, right? That we wouldn't even want to watch in a movie often. And that's before their very eyes, and they're saying, we'll give thanks. How in the world can you give thanks in every circumstance like that? How is that possible? And that kind of feels like a typo, doesn't it? But think about it. Gratitude is a choice. It's a choice. It's, it's a choice to, to focus on what it is that you have versus what it is that you don't have. These people don't have justice yet, but they know they have God. They know they have a shepherd, and they know that God will one day vindicate them. See, even in the midst of all this awfulness, they still have a shepherd. They are still God's people. They anticipate praising God for their redemption from their oppressors because of the forgiveness they've received. Therefore, guys, if you are in Christ, verse 13 is just as true for you. Anger, you guys, is a God-given emotion. We see it in the Psalms, we see it in God, and we see it in us. And it tells us so much about our hearts, and it reveals what we love. May we be people who are good and angry, right? Who get angry at the right things that reflect the heart of God, that glorify Him in this world, and that ultimately may our anger be redemptive anger in this world. I want to end with a sort of different benediction. Uh, it's a prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Um, it's perhaps the most well-known prayer outside of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus prayed and taught His disciples how to pray in the Gospels. And in this prayer, St. Francis longs for a better way to respond to the troubles and aggravations and evils that we face. And here's what he prays. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is faith, or where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. I really do hope that God encourages you this morning. If you're a Christian and you are just in despair over the anger in your life, 
I know I've been at different points. Um, I, I hope you're encouraged and you trust and know that you are becoming more and more like Jesus, that God has promised to do that and that you will, when you see him one day, you will be like him. Guys, in one day, you're headed towards a day where there will be no more anger because there will be no more sin. There will be no more injustice because the judge of the earth has justified us through Jesus. So may we be people this week who lift our eyes to him and display his heart.